All right, grab your Bibles <coughs> and turn to Exodus 32. Exodus chapter 32. And this morning we'll be in the first 14 verses. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. They said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The Lord said to Moses, Go down. For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power, with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel your servants whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Lord, Familiar passages like this 
ought to regularly, when we think about them and consider them, grip our hearts and arrest our thinking, Lord. They ought to sober us up and help us to realize, Lord, that if these, your people, could sin in such a way, there go we, but by the grace of you, our God. And so we rest in your grace. We extol your grace. We worship you from the foundation of your grace. Because if we do not have your grace and mercy given to us, like you eventually did with the Israelites, then we find ourselves to be under your hot wrath of judgment, deservingly so. But Lord, we praise you and thank you for your love that you've extended to us, your grace that you've shown to us, your mercy that you've given to us, Lord. We praise you and ask your blessing upon our sermon in your name. Amen. Well, Brian Gumpy told me a story last time I was out there. And we drove by this In-N-Out burger in Colorado Springs. And he said this was the first one in the state. And for several days, there was lines upon lines of people waiting to get in and get their food. He told me, there, there was one particular anecdote where a couple had been waiting in line and it was an eight-hour wait. And so they had a pizza delivered to their car so that they could stay in line to get their burgers at the end of the day. <laughs> I guess it's true that you can take the people out of California, but you can't take California out of the people. And the tr- that is true clearly in our story here that you can take these people out of Egypt, but Egypt did not leave the hearts of these people. Even though <coughs> they are Jews, the Israelites, the old covenant people of God, their hearts were extremely hard and extremely far from him. Moses had been up on the mountain. You'll remember the story. Maybe I need to go back and reiterate a little bit. But in chapter 19 of Exodus, Moses first brings the people to Mount Sinai. And there they have to establish a perimeter around the mountain. No one's allowed to go up on the mountain except Moses, Joshua, and the 70 elders. And they go up and worship before the Lord And there they are given the instructions of the Ten Commandments along with a few other of those legal um, devices like how to have slavery and those kind of things that we looked at in the book of earlier book of Exodus. And then they came down from the mountain, if you'll remember. They gave the testimony to the people of the Lord And the people of the Lord said, wonderful, praise God, everything that you have told us, we will do. Everything. Everything you've told us, we will do. 
And then Moses is called back up onto the mountain, this time leaving the 70 elders down the mountain and only going up with Joshua himself. We'll actually pick up with him next week, Lord willing. But he goes back up on the mountain and he's going to be up there for 40 days. And the entire time that he's up there, God had been giving him all of the instructions that we have been looking at in regards of building the tabernacle and the way that God would be worshipped rightly. So it is very striking that while God is giving his instructions to Moses about how he is to be rightly worshipped, the people devolve into finding a way themselves to worship whatever it is they want to worship. Beloved, it might be true that you can't take Egypt out of these Israelites, but the reality is it's much deeper than that. Your heart, along with the heart of these people here in Israel, is what Calvin called a factory for idols. Just pumping them out, building idols, manufacturing other things to worship other than the true and living God. You do it. I do it. Our hearts are inclined that direction. It is our fallen default to worship other things other than the true and living God. <clears throat> we need to be forced regularly to come back to the realization that God is God, we are not, and we do not have the privilege, we do not have the ability, we do not have the authority, we do not have the right to worship God any old way that we want. We are called by God, saved by God, sanctified by God, will be glorified by God. And in all of this, it's all of God's doing. Therefore, we should worship God the way he calls us to worship him. And the old covenant Jews were no different. They should have, in seeing everything that God had already done for them, I mean, it's, it should be, right? As we hear this particular episode, it immediately strikes us, how could they do that? I mean, we don't regularly see miracles, and you're not going to regularly see miracles. God isn't doing those kind of things anymore. He doesn't need to because he's given us his word of God. He's given us his Bible. So he doesn't need to continually do things to prove and demonstrate his own authority. But they did. They saw all of these wonderful miracles and they were not persuasive enough. They were not compelling enough. They were not powerful enough to change the heart of these rebellious Jews. But there are many people today who are begging God to do miracles, begging God to call, you know, to do all these miraculous, wonderful things as if that's going to be the thing that's going to be the anchor for their souls. And beloved, it's not. It wasn't for them. It won't be today. If Christ is not your anchor, if the gospel is not your anchor, then you will be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes along just like these Jews. 
Look what it says here. When the people saw that Moses had delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him. Now, we don't know exactly how long. People are impatient. And we like to think that we are a more impatient society because we want our food fast. We want to go get our gas quick. We want to go from place to place. But the reality is, is impatience is bound up in the heart of people. No matter if they are desert-dwelling nomads or if they live in modern-day America. But here, Moses, in their opinion, had delayed his coming down from the mountain. Whether it was a week or two weeks or three weeks, we don't exactly know. But it says the people gathered themselves to Aaron. Now that's a very polite way of putting. It literally means that they surrounded Aaron. That, that they were about to riot. That they surrounded him with a malicious intent. They gathered themselves to him to force him. Aaron was now in charge as Moses was gone. And the people went to him as the leader. And they implored him up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Now, they never really, as we've gone through the book of Exodus, had a terribly fond opinion of Moses. They've always been a little bit... uh, suspicious of him they've always looked at him with a little bit of disdain who are you to rule over us they're going to continue to do that throughout the exodus as well and here as he's gone what's really in their hearts actually comes out this man moses (coughs) who brought us out of egypt we already know that they regret having left egypt multiple times they've complained once for water and once for food that we just know of. There are probably other times that we don't have recorded for us. But these people resented Moses' leadership. And as soon as he's gone and they feel like there's an opening for themselves to push themselves in, that's exactly what they do. And they do it in the form of looking back and looking to the gods of Egypt. Looking back and saying, those gods are actually what saved us. Those gods are the ones who saved us. It's interesting because God, we looked at in the plagues, was systematically, remember, dismantling the idolatry and the false worship of the Egyptians. But yet the very thing that God showed as being wholly inadequate and an utter failure in terms of a worship and religious system is the very thing they want to go back to and adopt for themselves. People are myopic. (laughs) They, they, They have such a small, tiny tunnel vision, and they just are looking back to the times where it was relatively easier, 
They weren't out in the desert. They weren't on their own. They didn't have to walk by faith. They could walk by sight. Everything was laid out before them. They had a regular routine and pattern of life. Everything was relatively what it was supposed to be. And now everything was in upheaval and topsy-turvy. And the very first chance they get, they want to go back to that. Make us gods who shall go before us. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 19 says, The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. He said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation. These children in whom no faithfulness is in, they have made me jealous with what is not a God, They've provoked me to anger with their idols. In Joshua chapter 24, just as Joshua is about to die, the promised land has been conquered and he is giving his last farewell to them. He says to them, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him. Serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Even when they go through the entire time of the wandering in the wilderness, the many years of conquering Canaan, seeing God doing all of these things, still then Joshua knows what's bound up in their hearts. And it's a longing back for Egypt. It's a longing back for other gods. Now we might look at this and we might go, well, that certainly was them. In fact, in the book of Acts, one of Stephen's great criticisms of the people of his day, the Pharisees, was that they were acting in a very similar way. In Acts chapter 7, verse 38, he says, This is the one who was in our congregation, who in the wilderness, with the angel, spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, and with our fathers. He received the living oracles to give us. But our fathers refused to obey him, thrust him aside, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has became of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol, that their, the works of their hand, the rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God gave them over and turned away from them so that they would worship the host of heaven. Even in the days after Christ, still the commentary is that the hearts of the fathers, the hearts of us, long for Egypt, long for idolatry, long to worship something other than the true and living God. In fact, it is not something that Christians are immune to. Did you know that? 
We as Christians, beloved, we still have the tendency and can certainly fall into this trap of idolatry. We need to be aware that this is the reality of our hearts and we need to beware that we don't be deceived as so many people have and are in this day and age. Now, people might be deceived by the celebrity culture in the church. People will worship other men just being down at the California Southern Baptist Convention, although there was much good, so much good that I see going on in our state convention. You hear little things about this man and this man, and it's said with an air of almost a sacrilegious nature as somebody is exalting a man higher than perhaps he ought to be. We see it in other churches as people will worship their denominations or people will worship other things other than the true and living God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul has to warn the church about this. Paul has to warn the church because the church has the tendency to idolatry. He says this, Now, all these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 people fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, nor just, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Beloved, to the most mature among us, I would heartily and earnestly warn, you are not immune from this sin. Idolatry is in your heart. It's still right there below the surface. Beware. These these things that we have were written to us as an example so that we might not be led astray, that we might not fall. Beware. When we think we stand, we're the closest we are to falling. John says in the book of 1 John, as he closes the book, Think This is one of the pivotal books of the New Testament, 1 John. And he writes this entire glowing epic of a book about our union, our relationship with Christ, 
our being united to Him, the great love He has for us, the great atonement that we have in Christ. He gives us these wonderful tests about how you can absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're saved, that you're right with God, that you're full of the Holy Spirit, that you're walking with Him. And all of this, this wonderful, glowing book about your union and relationship with Christ, He concludes with these words. And now we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the end of the book. Jesus is our eternal life. Jesus is our great Savior. He's the great Son of God. He is the true God. You think that'd be enough, but he has to say the concluding words, keep yourself from idols. Why? Because even though we have these words in front of us, and even though we are compelled by faith to follow them and to believe in them and trust in these words, you can and you will fall into idolatry if you do not have Christ as the glorious apple of your eye, the great object of your affection. Beloved, if anything gets in the way of your love with Christ, you will fall into idolatry. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We sing regularly and we ought to. Because we do have still within us not just the propensity, the bent towards idolatry, but if we don't have Christ as our great affection, we will run to idols with open arms. And it can be anything. And beloved, in our church today, we need to be aware of this because there are so many people, and maybe you're sitting here and maybe you're like this, that you think, well, because I come here, because I hear the word of God, because I want to hear it rightly preached, I'm better than those out there, or I'm better than some of these other churches. We have a better way of singing. We have a better way of praying. We have a better way of worshiping. We have a better way of preaching. We have a better way of the ordinances. And those might all be true because we're trying to have them formed by the sacred scripture. However, beloved, we want to make sure that those don't become the very things that drive us away from Christ. Because even the most best things can be the things that get our attention just off of Christ. Beloved, keep yourself from idols. So whether it's good things that are taking your attention off the Lord or bad things, Satan doesn't care. The enemy doesn't care. Your flesh doesn't care. It wants what it wants, and it will go towards things other than the true and living God. Your flesh cries out to you, to your soul, up, make us gods to go before us. Your flesh cries out for that. And it does still today. Now, Aaron, we look at Aaron, and I have read throughout this, throughout this week, and I have known this passage was coming up and there's a element of sympathy that I have for Aaron here in this situation. Now don't get me wrong, 
I absolutely know he's in sin and don't hear me saying anything other than he's sinning. Listen, compromise equals death. And this, I shouldn't say that categorically all the time, everywhere, in every way. But spiritual compromise equals death. Certainly. And I believe, having prayed and really thought about this section, that this is what Aaron's doing. He's legitimately trying to make a compromise. He, he's playing politics here. He has a lobbying group coming against him, and they're putting some pressure to him, saying, we want what we used to have. Make that for us. Aaron, knowing that they can't do that, they can't go back to that, Aaron's been called by God, commissioned by God, ordained by God. Now, <coughs> he needs to lead the people to God. But rather than standing firm, he does compromise. Look what he says, first of all, down in verse 5. He, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and made the proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, Yahweh. Not even Adonai. Not just the generic Elohim God. He says, this will be a feast to Yahweh. Aaron is trying this path of syncretism to blend one religion, the mystery, idolatrous religions of Egypt, with the worship of the true and living God and trying to find a way to compromise. And so he's taking what was from the old world, he takes their gold, he makes it into a calf, probably fashioned it in a bowl with wood and then overlaid it with gold. It would have to be a heck of a lot of earrings in order to make a solid golden calf. So it was more likely the way most idols were made in the ancient world was wood overlaid with gold and then finally um, detailed out from there. But he makes this golden calf. He's the one who clearly fashions it. And notice that he only makes one. They want gods, but he makes one. Likely what he's doing here is he's making a bull in the fashion of the Egyptian god Apis, which was one of the greatest of the Egyptian gods, and it was typically manifested in a live bull that would be born with certain kinds of striping, certain kinds of patching to it, and it was down in southern Memphis where this bull would live and it lived in a palace and only the most elite and the wealthy in Egypt were even allowed to go and lay eyes on this particular bull. It was that sacred. When it would die, it would be mummified just like any pharaoh and it would be reincarnated and they would look for another bull throughout the land that had those same similar markings to it and that would become the new manifestation of Apis. So likely this is what Aaron is doing. We don't have that clearly laid out for us, but it certainly makes sense that he takes this one singular object of entirety of their worship that really all of the gods seemed to contribute in, seemed to focus on, 
seem to be related around that the entirety of Egypt would look to this one singular object and Aaron takes this one object and says, here is Yahweh. It it really should make our hearts sink. Aaron, as well-intentioned as we can possibly think, especially as a minister, And I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had people come to me and say, hey, Pat, here's what you should do. And it might be something really good. Like, here's a ministry that you should do. It sometimes is something really bad. Here's something we should do. And all of those times I've had to really pray and discern, Lord, is this really what you want for me, for us, for the church? And I've made mistakes. Thankfully, I've not made mistakes in the category of Aaron here where we've built other gods. I mean, this is the closest I got, this little pumpkin illustration for the kids. But obviously, you see what I was doing there is pointing out, no, we don't worship creatures. We don't worship things. We worship God. We worship the true and living God. But I can understand Aaron's plight and I know there's, I, I think of this one particular pastor that, you know, he, he it's ha- talking with him one-on-one is a great guy. Clearly, this man loves Jesus. Sat down and had lunch with him a couple of years ago. And he, he wonderful things to say. I mean, we had a great, great gospel conversation around lunch. And yet his church is massive with, you know, nearly 10,000 people who go there. And I really genuinely think if he were to get up in his underwear and preach that he would do that just to get more people in the door. And and that's syncretism. This man is Aaron. And he might not be, like I said, erecting a golden calf in front, but his idol, or at least the idol of his church that people are saying, rise up and make us gods, is more people in the seats, more money coming in, the bigger building, the glossier lights, money to be able to pay professional musicians. And even though this man, I genuinely believe, loves the Lord, has compromised. And if this man can do it, who clearly is gifted, how quickly could I do it too? How quickly could we do it too? Beloved, we need to take care and be on guard because our hearts want to tell us, rise up and make us gods who shall go before us. Now, while these people are doing this, Moses has been receiving the instructions on the building of the tabernacle and God clearly knows what's going on, but he does not interrupt his giving of these instructions about his own worship when his very own people are straying from the worship they ought to be doing that very moment. God is kindly patient. Isn't it remarkable that God in that moment does not immediately judge Aaron and all of them? Moses is up there on the mountain and God just opens up the ground, consumes them all and says, Dude, starting over with you. Israel reboot. 
I mean, he says that's what he's going to do, but God doesn't do that. You notice that? God here gives this speech in 7 through 10, and even though it sounds harsh, I want you to understand that this is the height of mercy. Listen what he says, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people whom you brought (coughs) up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it, sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make of you a great nation." God, he begins by watching these people rising up and playing. That means they were committing acts of immorality while they were worshiping. And the Lord says, rather than rise up like the people said to Aaron, he says, go down. For your people whom you brought up. He echoes their very words, right? They said, where's this Moses who brought us up? They don't even give God credit. And God doesn't give himself even credit. Instead, he says, Moses, these are your people. He says, go down. And notice he doesn't give any instruction to Moses about what he's supposed to do in going down. He just says, go down to them and leave me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and consume them, and I'll make a great nation out of you. I said this was a commentary on God's mercy, or it was comments of God's mercy. And let me show you why. Because God here, first of all, doesn't judge them immediately for what they did, which I already alluded to. But secondly, these are words in which he doesn't owe to Moses or anybody But this is a condensation on God's part where he is stooping down and he's telling Moses, I am not pleased. He's actually offering Moses the opportunity to enter into what it is God is considering and thinking about doing. God is bringing Moses in to his secret counsel here. Rather than it just being an inter-Trinitarian conversation about their frustration with their covenant people, God says to Moses, hey, here is what these people deserve. My hot wrath to burn against them, to consume them. I will make a great nation out of you. I will use you now. Now, God is not unique in doing this. God many times in the pages of Scripture has gone to people and said this is what he's going to do and have brought people into his inner council. Abraham with the two angels about to go into Sodom and Gomorrah are given a great feast and there as the angels go into Sodom and Gomorrah he begins to 
dialogue with God and says, will you really? If there's 50 righteous people, God says, no, all right, I won't destroy it. What about 40? I won't destroy it. What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And God says, even if there's 10 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. Now, did God owe Sodom and Gomorrah that? Did God even need or was he obligated to bring Abram into that conversation? No. But in all of this, God is using means to accomplish his ends. And he's using in that way a mediator. There's an interesting passage in the book of Amos, chapter 7. God's wrath is hot against the nation of Israel. And God comes to the prophet Amos and says this, This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And it was the latter growth after the king's mowings when they had finished eating the grass of the land I said, oh Lord, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. The Lord relented concerning this and said, it shall not be. Then this is what the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep and it was eating up the land. And I said, oh Lord, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. And then he showed me, behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, and the plumb line was in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? He said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people of Israel, and I will never again pass by them in the high places of Isaac that shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid to waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. You have these <coughs> visions given to Amos of God's wrath. The first one is locusts coming in and eating all of the crop in the entire land. And the second one is a fire coming in and consuming everything in the land. Both of these judgments are indiscriminate. You notice? They are consuming and categorically wiping out everything in Israel. There is no consideration for fairness. It is just all pure justice. I shouldn't say fairness. There's no consideration for mercy. And then what does God do? The last judgment he brings is a plumb line. What does a plumb line do? It shows you what level is. What is just? What is right? And then God goes on to say, I won't judge indiscriminately, but instead I will judge with an equity and a fairness against those people who raise up high places. I will judge <coughs> against those who erect false sanctuaries. I will judge those against the house of Rehoboam. And this is where it says that the Lord relents. In the book of Micah, or pardon me, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, in fact, right at the very end in chapter 3, verse 6, God says this, I, the Lord, do not change. 
Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. We might be inclined to think <clears throat> that when God judges and people are consumed, we might be inclined to think that God acts like he says he's going to initially in Amos. That he acts like he's going to initially do with Abraham and completely wipe out the whole city, even if there's 50 righteous people. Like he's going to do here and wipe out the entire nation and restart over, reboot with Moses. But listen, the whole point is God doesn't relent, and that's why you're not consumed. Even though we read that word here in verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken, what it means is he was moved with pity, or he had compassion, or there was a care upon his heart that he was going to show his people. You are not utterly consumed because the Lord doesn't relent. And so even though the Bible stoops down and talks to us in this kind of language, what God is doing here is not he is changing, but he is bringing his mediators in to his secret council and bringing people into what the work he is going to do and using that as the means by which he works. It's like our prayer life. God doesn't need to act according to our prayers, but he's chosen to. He uses these means. God doesn't need the gospel to go out in order to save souls. He could immediately just come in and zap you saved, but he's chosen to use the means of the gospel going forth in order to save people's souls. And God has also chosen to use mediators in order to bring about his gracious work in the life of his people. And that's what we find here with Moses. So when God speaks to Moses, he is not in fact saying, here's exactly line by line what I'm going to do. He is in fact inviting Moses into doing the mediating work so that when mercy does come, Moses is involved with God's work. It's a grace. It's a mercy that he brings us into his work at all. But he does, and that's what he's doing here. Look at Moses' words as we conclude this. Verse, 13, verse 11. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with an evil intent did he bring them out to kill them? in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and, I said, to, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised your offspring, I will give it, and they shall inherit it forever." This is a remarkably God-centered prayer that Moses prays. This intercession pleads with the Lord using his name directly. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fourteen times. <laughs> Notice <clears throat> the people want another God. Aaron tries to syncretize these two worships and compromise which brings death 
God comes in and says, these aren't my people anymore. They're your people. You brought them up. Get a, you go down to them because I'm about to kill them. And Moses turns to the Lord and he is completely God-saturated and says these things. Now there's four important things that he says here in his intercession and that are huge for us, that should help us, that really should inform our prayers as we're praying for other people, as we're praying uh, for our own hearts. He begins in verse 11 by saying, Why does the Lord your God, pardon me, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? The first thing Moses does is he pleads because God has already worked. He pleads because God has already worked. Moses here is a man of mercy. He sees God's mercy already having been taken place in his people. And he goes back to what he's already seen and said, God, you've already shown mercy. I beg you to continue to show mercy. And beloved, you resemble what you revere. If you revere God's mercy, then you really ought to look merciful. You ought to be extremely merciful. If we revere the Lord, we ought to very first thing go back to God's mercy and consider other people and thinking there go be by the grace of God. Oh Lord, you've been merciful in the past. Please continue to be merciful now and into the future, which is the very first thing he bases his mediation on. God, your mercy. Please show mercy. Secondly, in verse 12, he says, Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Secondly, in his mediation, he doesn't just declare God's mercy, but he says, God, your message, your nature, your character would be unclear to the nations if you do what you're saying you're going to do. You would be sending mixed messages, Lord. And you're not like that. You are the truth. You are the way. You are right. And Lord, if you consume them now, you are going to contradict what you said you were going to do in the past. And all of the nations are going to look and say, well, that God couldn't save. They're going to look and be confused about your nature and your character. Lord, you said you were going to do this. So Lord, please continue to do what you said you were going to do. Thirdly, he says, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by your own self and said, I will multiply the offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised I will give your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. The Lord here, or the third thing that he banks on or that he asks the Lord pleads with in terms of his mediation is he appeals to the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The Lord swore by his own self. He appeals to the third commandment. God, you swore by your own self. I appeal to you and your own words, Lord. 
Lord, you've been merciful. Lord, if you do this, you'll be confusing to the nations. And Lord, you have sworn, and we are supposed to not take your name in vain. Lord, according to your law, you're not going to take your own name in vain. And this could potentially lead to that. And then finally, Moses appeals to the covenant. The covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or Israel here. He goes back to the covenant and said, God, you promised that you would take these people and place them in this land. Lord, you're merciful. Lord, if you were to wipe them all out right now, it would be confusing to the nations and contradictory to what you've already said. And Lord, because you're not contradictory, Lord, stand on your covenant, or pardon me, stand on your own commandment. You swore, so please do what you swore. And Lord, do it because you've made this covenant. And the covenant is what we all stand upon. This great mediated work by Moses is heard by the Lord. The Lord brings Moses in graciously into his inner council. <clears throat> and Moses pleads for his people even though their sin is so great, isn't it? <laughs> even though God would have been perfectly right to do what he was going to do and nothing that he would have done in consuming them would have indeed been contradictory to what Moses interceded, but his mercy is great. Our sins are greater, but are great, but his mercy is so much greater. Lord, has for us given a mediator that is even greater than Moses. We have Jesus as our great mediator interceding for us. And he is regularly there at the throne of God, pleading with God that he would continue to show us mercy, grace. That he would continue to do in us exactly what he swore he would do. That he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. That God's covenant will not fail to do what God said it would do with us. So beloved, as we look to this work and we find ourselves in the, these Egyptian loving Israelites so clearly, knowing that we deserve God's wrath, God has provided for us a mediator that is even greater than Moses that mediates for us right now. And that's Christ our Lord and Savior pleading mercy on our behalf. Beloved, I pray that you would be absolutely overwhelmed with the mercy of God. That you would receive this gracious relenting from the disaster he would bring upon you because of his great love and his great grace that he's shown to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, like Jeremiah said, your mercies are new every morning. <clears throat> and Lord, we need them renewed every morning because if we don't have them at the forefront of who we are and what we do, Lord, we will fall right back into idolatry. Our flesh will cry out and say, rise up and make gods for us and we will comply. 
And so, Lord, we pray that your mercy would grip us, that Christ, you would grip us, that you would bind us to yourself in such a way that we would be utterly and radically consumed with you, Lord. Lord, we praise you for the grace and the mercy that you've shown to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we never take it for granted, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.